Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. A few months ago, I did an episode on a man by the name of George Orton. He had come from Canada. He was an amazing runner who would probably change running in North America more than nearly anybody else at the time. And he won Canada's first medal at the Olympics back in Paris over a century ago. But... That episode contained some information that was incorrect. Now I'm at the mercy of what I could find on the internet, and a lot of the information on the internet was incorrect. And a man by the name of Mark Hebsher got in contact with me, and he wrote a book about George Orton, and he actually sent me a copy, and it was an excellent book. I really enjoyed it. It kind of blended the story of George Orton with the progress that Mark was making in making a documentary about George Orton. And it cleared up a lot of facts that were incorrect about George Orton. And it was excellent. And so I, I talked to Mark and I said, let's get you on the show. And Mark was more than happy to come on the show and talk with me. And he was a great interview. So we're going to talk to Mark Hebsher about George Orton and Canadian athletes and sports in general. But before I continue... If you want to support the podcast, you can. For as little as $3 a month, you can help keep this podcast going, which I do full-time. There's multiple tiers for you to choose from. Each tier has different rewards. You can get episodes early. You can get my interviews over Zoom with well-known Canadians weeks early. You get free admission into my monthly Zoom history conferences. A whole bunch of things. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. So let's get right to that interview. What brought George Orton to your attention? Yeah, I'd never heard of him before. My son, who was a teenager at the time, uh, was reading a trivia book, The Great Canadian Trivia Book, which, by the way, is a fantastic book. Just uh, some of the things I found out, you know, you think you know a lot about your country <laughs> or your sport or whatever. And I thought I knew everything about sports. And I didn't know the answer to the trivia question, who was the first Canadian to win an Olympic gold medal? Uh, my son and his friends were just razzing me, like mercilessly, like, <laughs> Dad, you don't know of all people. You're Mr. Sports Expert and you don't know. And they had a lot of fun making fun of me, which I laughed off a bit. But, you know, deep down inside, I was like, how, did I, how do I not know this guy? <laughs> and, um, of course, your curiosity gets the better of you. And I hit Google and uh, there was very little in Google. And a lot of it was um, um, contradictory. 
Mm-hmm. He was Canadian. He was an American. He was supposed to, he was uh, considered to be an American. And then someone realized he was from Canada and then he was a Canadian, but he was, he was never embraced as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it was very odd that somebody who had accomplished something like that could fall out of the public consciousness and, and be the answer to a trivia question. So I uh, decided that uh, I was going to do a documentary on this fellow, uh, which I did. I did a documentary, uh, wasn't quite complete, wasn't ready for air, wasn't ready to be distributed. But you know, in the midst of doing all that, I had some adventures and found out some things about this man, peeled back layers that I had no idea and no one did. And um, it became quite a, quite an eye-opening story and continues to be. There's mm-hmm. more layers to it on a daily basis. It's sort of like an ongoing soap opera as to like, how did this how did this guy who accomplished so much, yeah. how, did, how could he be so obscure to the point where people are misidentifying him as someone else? Mm-hmm. It's quite Without remarkable. A um, it kind of brings to my second question. Um, uh, just with the, all the information out there about Orton, and like you said, so much of it is contradictory. And I'm guilty of that too, because with my podcast episode, you know, I'm, I'm getting this information from the, the web and then, you know, parlaying that out as my podcast episode but a lot of that was contradictory and like you you had mentioned to me when we first uh started talking the picture i had wasn't even of orton but for some reason over the years it just got associated with orton and then i, I saw yesterday even uh, i think it was team canada was tweeting out his i think it was his the day he won or his birthday or something like that yeah 120th and, anniversary of his win. yeah and they're using the wrong picture. And, and so it's just this thing that just keeps propagating. Um, Imagine how it, I feel. Imagine how I feel trying exactly. to get that information, trying to get the truth told, trying to tell people, no, 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 what you've, what you've thought or what you've heard mm-hmm. for the last number of years. It's not true. Forget it. Telling people, forget that. Mm-hmm. Forget it. It's not true. Believe what I'm telling you because I went and did the research. Yeah. And that's I mean, very frustrating when Team Canada and before that, the Globe and Mail, Canada's yeah. national newspaper, are writing and publishing things that weren't properly researched. And this is, you know, a problem that we have today. It's very easy to go to Wikipedia, but a real, uh, I mean, real journalism requires work and following up and fact checking. And and if your source is not an impeccable source, Craig, you, Mm -hmm. you have to get a second independent source to verify or corroborate the information that you got. You can't just, unless it's an impeccable source. Yeah. You can't just say, oh, well, I read this somewhere or somebody said that or somebody tweeted that. Unfortunately, that's what we're guilty of as a society. Mm-hmm. And journalists are becoming um, guilty of it as well. It kind of, um, you know, the word fake news in a lot of ways is not, um, is not untrue. Yeah. You really do have to consider the source. And that has mm-hmm. to, if it's a great source like the Associated Press or Canadian Press or, or the Globe and Mail is considered mm-hmm. to be a great source. And those sources are getting the information wrong. Yeah. What does that tell you? Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem with uh, Orton was I would look and I, I usually with my research, I'll hit a whole bunch of websites and then craft my episodes. And, and with him, I'd hit all these websites and it seemed like a lot, a lot of them were kind of getting this information from whatever this one source years ago. And it just, like I said, it just keeps right. propagating. And so it's hard to find that checks and balances until someone like you goes and, and, and does the trips and, and finds all that information. So that was the whole book was an eye opener. And that's why I was really happy to do this interview because I don't want to put out wrong information uh, at all with, 
with my No, podcast. I know you don't. And I know you don't. And I, and I also felt it was my duty rather than let it sit there mm-hmm. and for people to listen and go, oh, that's the truth about George Orton, that it's yeah. really my duty to, um, you know, to let people know. You know, oh, am absolutely. I angry? Listen, if they didn't read the book or didn't know that it existed and, you know, that's how you gather your information, how would they ever know unless I told them? Yeah, absolutely. And so. say, look, let me send you a copy of the book or here's an excerpt from it. But you, you know, your, your information's wrong. But what I really want more than anything is I want a hundred years from now, if anyone reads about George Orton, I want them to be reading the truth. Yeah. <laughs> not, not what's happened the last hundred years where the stuff that people are reading is incorrect. Absolutely. I think Wikipedia has finally changed the picture to, uh, to actually George me. Orton. Oh, it was you. Okay. That was me. <laughs> I, I yeah, checked no, it today. See, as you know, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> as you know, Craig, you can go into Wikipedia, yeah. which I did. And yeah. I just basically <laughs> pulled everything out of there because it was all wrong. And I just couldn't stand to see it in print. Yeah. I didn't want one more person to, 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 you know, stumble across George Orton, go to Wikipedia and then take that as the gospel. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, couldn't stand it any longer. It, it, that's what makes George Orton such an interesting character. And it kind of comes to my next thing. If, if George Orton stayed in Canada, do you think he would be as well known as somebody like Tom Longboat, who a lot of Canadians do know about? There's, you know, a lot's been written about him. Uh, do you feel like he'd be as well known if he had stayed in Canada rather than going to Pennsylvania and uh, Penn State? Yeah, for sure. More so, in fact. Uh, the problem, I think, with Orton was he was born at a particular time. Had he been born more in Longboat's era, and Longboat was a star runner from around 1908, Mm-hmm. you know, through to, you know, uh, for the next uh, decades or whatever. And of course, he was in the Olympics and, and such and, and was a native uh, Canadian. And so that caused a lot of controversy in his career as well. And there's no doubt that he was a tremendous runner. But in Orton's situation, he just did not care about the publicity. He was not um, interested in, sell, um, in, in serving others and, you know, uh, in self-gratification he didn't pat himself on the back he didn't think he was anything special so mm-hmm. he you know uh, his accomplishments to him were like a personal thing but he didn't look at it from a standpoint of pleasing an audience or bragging about his you know his abilities and so that kind of makes him uniquely canadian mm-hmm. right absolutely it's like, yeah. you know we're the type of people we don't brag we're not bragging <laughs> i mean i mentioned I, I i couldn't count on one hand the number of canadians in any situation, you know, bragging, saying, you know, oh, no, master, maybe we should do more of it. Yeah, I think and we so should. So <laughs> he just never brought it, to, he never brought attention to himself. And I think mm-hmm. that was to his detriment mm-hmm. as far as, as history goes. And so I've, you know, I'm sort of his PR person. I mean, obviously I'm his biographer, but also I have a great appreciation for what this man accomplished and was never given credit for. Yeah. I feel it's my duty to say, look, this guy, he wasn't just a, I mean, this guy really changed the face of 20th century sports. He, mm-hmm. he put numbers on football uniforms. Uh, he convinced Teddy Roosevelt that the Army Navy football game should be played yeah. in Philadelphia. He, w- he was running the stadium there, but he mm-hmm. also had a vested interest. And yeah. he was a football reporter, probably the first embedded reporter, sports reporter uh, in, in the history of North American sports, where he wrote you know, uh, a number of articles while he was embedded in the, with the track team at the, the Paris Olympics in, in football it was quite, quite interesting, man. So his accomplishments were uh, massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the fact that he was disabled. So yeah. he would have been the first disabled athlete to win a gold medal. And this mm-hmm. was at the uh, able-bodied Olympic Games. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he was a he was a staunch uh, he was a real a, a proponent of equality even back then equality mm -hmm. for women equality yes. for people of color and equality for the disabled persons because mm -hmm. he understood that he was disabled yeah. himself and, and he he could identify I guess with people who were marginalized or looked at a certain way because he was paralyzed as a young child and probably they pointed fingers at him and said, you'll never mm -hmm. amount to anything like that. And so uh, he, he was quite a man. And, you know, I'm glad I wrote the story, but I have to now keep correcting on a regular basis, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, people and um, showing them the light that what this mm -hmm. guy's all about. Um, in one of my favorite parts of the book was when you're talking about the Paris Olympics and just how poorly it was put together and how nobody cared about it. Um, and even in Canada, like today, if somebody gets a gold medal, you know, they're all over the news. Whereas with George Jordan, it was like, yeah, this guy got a gold medal and that was it. So did the poor planning and the implementation of the Paris Olympics and even just the stigma of the Olympics back then, was that a detriment to Orton kind of getting the uh, recognition that he deserved? I don't think so. Uh, it didn't really matter what, had it been in Paris and was poorly done or had it been somewhere else and it was done beautifully. The uh, International Olympic Committee didn't recognize nations, the parade of nations, until 1908. So anything that happened in the first three modern Olympics, which were uh, Athens, Paris, and St. Louis, um, there, there weren't always gold, silver, and bronze medals handed out to the top three finishers. Some of the events were, you know, uh, pi you know pigeon shooting with live pigeons and tug of war and that type of thing. So the Olympics, uh, the modern Olympics, were still trying to f figure themselves out. Mm -hmm. Should we allow women? Should we not allow women? What events should women take place in? Uh, well, what, what are some of the events that we don't need to have that maybe don't work? And sort of Paris was like the combination of all that. Let's try everything goofy. But mm -hmm. the point is that none of the athletes in Paris were representing their country. That, that was done later. They were yeah. just there as an individual, right? Oh, you're from yeah. Czechoslovakia. You're from Greece. You're from whatever. And Orton was from Canada and very proud of it. Mm -hmm. It's just that in later years, he just got lumped with the Americans because they just said, oh, Orton, he went to Penn, right? They didn't bother to look where he was born or anything like that. And they said, let's slap a U.S. flag on him. And so for all those years, he was an American. Yeah. And then someone, wait a minute, did some, with some good research, mind you, wait a second, <laughs> he was born in Strathroy, Ontario. Why, why oh, do you he think was. It, and then. Sorry, I was, uh, just a relation to that. Why do you think it took so long for us to figure out that, hey, this guy, he was you know, Canadian. He's our first uh, Olympic gold medalist. Because nobody spoke out, not a family member, not a member of the media to say, hey, what about this guy, George Orton, that was running mm -hmm. around? And that was the most amazing thing. And I went back in the archives and such great writers as Jim Coleman of the Globe and Mail and uh, Foster Hewitt's father, W.A. Hewitt, mm -hmm. who was the managing editor of the Montreal Star for many, many years. These great writers of that time, even they were uh, incorrect in their information about Orton as to what he had become. They thought he had become a medical doctor. They mm -hmm. honestly thought, oh, we <laughs> last we heard he was at University of Pennsylvania and was a great runner. And, and uh, they didn't know that he introduced ice hockey to Philadelphia, that they had never played it until he came along and he organized the first team, the first mm -hmm. league, uh, the first University of Pennsylvania and had the first arena built. So he was like the father of hockey there. Yeah. But he was just, and so all of these things I think were because I believe that the, the media at the time, they were interested in him when he was in Canada, but once he left to go to Philadelphia, they, and a lot of them were very anti-American, mm -hmm. especially in Ontario, you know, the industrial heartland where they're a yeah. lot, all loyalists. 
oh, you're going to the States, eh? They're the ones who fought the British, you know, screw you. And we don't want to ever have anything to do. And from that point forward, when he went to the States, they never referred to him as George Orton from Toronto. They never referred to him as George Orton, the former U of T star. Mm-hmm. They only referred to him as George Orton of, of, of Penn University. And to me, I found that to be very odd that none yeah. of them made that reference. This guy spent 20 years in Canada, born and raised, school, graduated U of T at the age of 20. <laughs> Pretty smart guy. Started <laughs> yeah. hockey, started hockey at U of T. Like there was no ice. Yeah. You had to hope that it got cold, right? He was mm-hmm. on the first hockey team at the University of Toronto as well. So all of these things. I found out that he ran in, fr- in front of like 5,000 fans. They were cheering, screaming, carrying them off on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. This was all in the 1890s when he was in Toronto, when he was going to U of T. But after that, it's like he fell off the face of the earth. So how does that yeah. happen? No, absolutely. Uh, in relation, uh, you, you kind of mentioned it, but uh, George Orton was so much more than, and your book shows it, than running. Like he did write the this seminal book on writing, or uh, on running, sorry. Uh, and he taught people the the basics the the logistics of running but he also did so much more like with camp uh, Tecumseh and uh, uh, camp Iroquois I think but you'd mentioned the uh, the father of Philadelphia hockey do you think that we would have the Philadelphia Flyers and their two Stanley Cups if not for Orton all those years ago getting it started in the community even though you know the 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 building the roof caves in like all these problems happen but yeah yeah did do you think that uh, Without him, maybe we wouldn't have the Flyers or at least the current incarnation of them. I think that's obviously very hard to say. And look, mm-hmm. uh, I would take nothing away from Mr. Snyder and the family. I mean, you had to go out and raise capital in a town that was not a hockey town. Philadelphia mm-hmm. was not a hockey town. Orton tried his best and <laughs> Snyder tried his best too. And then eventually, of course, you know, the, the love affair. But, but I think, you know, what it was, was there were enough people in Philadelphia who had either grown up with hockey, played hockey, enjoyed watching hockey, um, that there was enough interest so that when Ed Snyder came along in 1966, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get money from the community and I was told, as Orton had been told, you know, 50 years earlier, this is not a hockey town. Yeah. You know what happens <laughs> to any city when someone says it's not a whatever town? Someone says, look, that's just not a football, not a baseball town, or it's not yep. a football town, or whatever. And when they say Philadelphia is not a hockey town, and people start to believe it, you still have your strong core that followed the American Hockey League and the Eastern Professional League and incarnations, incarnations of teams in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that, you know, once they came along, there was enough. There were enough people that just, they loved sports, and they wanted a team of their own, and they followed the National Hockey They might have followed the National Hockey League. You know, and they knew who Bobby Orr was and they knew who, uh, you know, Bobby Hall was and Maurice Richard, whatever the case, but Philadelphia fairly sophisticated. But I, I think that when to call him the father of hockey would, I won't say it's doing a disservice to the Snyder family, but because that's of modern professional hockey. But yeah, from, from the roots of hockey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was the one. In fact, the University of Pennsylvania, when I told them that I had found out that it, he had started hockey two years before they believe he, he, he they thought he had started in 1898. And I, I had to prove to them that he actually started hockey in 1896. He held practices on Centennial Lake, which is not far from the campus because there were no indoor arenas. And he, he called practices in like 1896 for a hockey team. It's quite remarkable. In no, fact, absolutely. he had, uh, he had a player on his team that was a member of the Stanley cup champion, um, uh, Montreal victorious. 
<laughs> I said, look, come down here. We'll get you. You'll get a free education. You'll play hockey for us. Right. Mm -hmm. Came down, Stanley Willett was his name. Montreal guy from Chambly, Quebec. It was a beautiful story. It was like, oh, you just won the Stanley <laughs> Cup? Come on. Come on. Because he could, because it was amateur. He wasn't making any money. Probably yeah. had to pay his own expenses to get places. And now here's an opportunity to go to Philadelphia in the United States, get an education for free, play for the University of Pennsylvania hockey team. And then he went on and played semi-professional. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. So yeah, Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's pretty cool. And he was apparently... For, by all accounts, a fantastic hockey player. Yeah. A one-arm player. He used, he used his bad arm just <laughs> yeah. to sort of wedge the stick in, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, a tremendous you know, left-hand shot and a great lacrosse player as well. And as we know, so many people that have a disability are so much stronger with uh, maybe another part of their, mm -hmm. of their body, of their anatomy, because of the loss of a, of a limb or, or something to that effect. So apparently he was a phenomenal player and could have played in, if there was, the NHL. Mm -hmm. easily back in those days would have been one of the top you know uh 50 or 100 hockey players in um in the world he'd be a lot North better America, known now anyway. if uh, if he had a oh wouldn't he ever had huh? in the nhl <laughs> yeah probably imagine, in the hall of fame oh that. yeah without a doubt um one thing I, I loved about the book was not only just kind of your quest to learn more about orton but there was kind of this second quest in it to to find this this fabled medal and uh, as you get to the end of the book and I don't want to spoil anything for anybody because it's a great <laughs> book. So read it, but it's this, you know, you're looking for this medal and the medal's hard enough to find because it, like with the Paris Olympics, they didn't really seem to care about even the medals, but do you think this medal will ever be found? And if it is, is there any way to verify that it, that it was Orton's? No, there's no way to verify it because there are um, conflicting stories. Uh, there and I, I believe me, I went through all the files, and my French is pretty good, Craig. Mm -hmm. uh, it was difficult, but I figured out. But I went through all of the documents from the 1900 Paris Olympics to determine uh, whether or not uh, actual medals were given out at some point to the winners and second and third place, and if not, what 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 was given to the winners, mm -hmm. uh, and that was uh, very inconsistent in their notes. <laughs> very inconsistent and some events uh, people got uh, like uh, uh, stick pins or tie pins uh, or writing instruments and in other cases they may have gotten uh, fine art um, since they were supposedly amateur they could not accept cash but they could they could accept something that had value that they could uh, pawn for cash or trade mm -hmm. for cash and and so and it was very again this was running concurrently with the um, the world's fair so it was not well organized and it was kind of like, like oh, geez, that's right. What are we going to do here? Uh, the, to the best of my knowledge, um, what I could tell is that Orton in the track and field events, uh, they were given medals. Uh, they believe that the first place uh, got a, was supposed to, was uh, retroactively gold, but would have been a silver medal made of like a sterling silver. And then the second place finisher would have gotten a bronze medal. Okay. Right. There weren't mm -hmm. one, two, three. And then in 1908, they said, OK, let's retroactively award medals, quote unquote, <laughs> to to the first, second and third place finishers in each event. Yeah. In each event. So I don't know if he got a medal. We don't know if he got a medal for his third place, his bronze medal, quote, performance in the 400 meter hurdles. It's possible that they may have only given medals to the top two finishers there. Mm hmm. But it's also possible they could have, yeah, given three medals in that particular event because these are, you know, the field, the track and field events were the most high profile events. 
um, swimming. Uh, I don't believe swimming uh, was even a factor. I don't believe they had pools. I believe that swimming was done in the, in the river kind of thing and <laughs> would have been marathon swimming. But anyway, the track and field events were the big events. And uh, Orton was mislabeled as a swimmer, I think I read in your book, right, by the Canadian Olympic <laughs> yeah, Committee, I the think? Glo- the Globe, no, it was the Globe, <laughs> okay, I the globe. think. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was sort of another one of those things where, oh, this poor guy couldn't get a break. I mean, if you believe everything you read, if you believe everything you read, you know, he's from Guelph, Ontario. He, he started running behind his father's carriages because they said it was a good idea after he fell out of a tree. Uh, you know, he, he, the picture of him is actually a picture of his brother. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was, a, he was a, a family doctor. He, just all of these things about him that were wrong. And then, of course, it's always errors and omissions. And, and of course, just the omission of the fact that the, the languages that he spoke and the, 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 the things he did for 20th century sports, the innovator mm. that he was, the father of the pen relays, the father of cross-country running. They say he was the one who made running distances pleasurable. Yeah. Yet the cross-country run is not a, is not, it's a run through forests. It's a run, you know, over hill and dale. It's, it's supposed <laughs> to be enjoyable. You're running alongside your friends, you're whatever. And then maybe the last mile or so, okay, you turn on the jets and you go. Mm-hmm. But so he was known as the father of cross country and he tried to, he tried to popularize cross country running uh, in the late 1800s. Um, but the problem was, uh, Craig, is that he would win every event. And so nobody wanted to compete against him anymore. So they were like, ah, <laughs> oh, George, forget your cross country. You're, you're so good at it. You're killing us all. And basically all the other schools opted out and said, we, we don't want to even run against you. Cause so he ended up winning it like seven years in a row. Right. And then, and then it was revitalized, but that's yep. where recreational running uh, began. Mm-hmm. It was a guy like Orton. You run for pleasure, go run a mile every morning before breakfast. Uh, you know, uh, it'll take you 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, what was the most difficult part of putting together the documentary, which you relate greatly and really well in uh, in the book but what was kind of the most difficult part of of put you know the whole process of from start to finish oh man you know uh you always want to get more information you want more uh footage you want um you want your interviews to go longer you you, you know you're ferreting out um uh something you're not sure what it is some response or something to that effect and the fact that we only had one uh, living person that knew George Horton, his granddaughter and his only uh, living relative. And the fact that she had no children and was, you know, also thinking of her own life and how that this, um, this great man, her grandfather, that his legacy would not, uh, would not continue on that uh, there and there and that she has artifacts and memorabilia that, that will not, once she's passed away, will, you know, no one will know the story. So she yeah. was appreciative of that. But at the same time, it was very melancholy because the woman was in her late 70s. And, uh, um, you know, I, I felt for her, but I, but I could also see the pride in her face that somebody wanted to do a story about her grandfather. And also some of the things that I told her that I discovered that she didn't know about, which was fascinating to tell someone about a relative of theirs mm-hmm. and have them go, I had no idea that he was... Like, I thought he was a, a great man. I thought he was a legendary, but I had no idea he was that yeah. legendary. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, in my Absolutely. mind, he was not. But, I mean, now that I, you know, now that I present <laughs> her with a lot of this, and, and she showed me pictures. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was really interesting, and it, it was kind of sad, and I kind of looked at it as a personal project. I took personal pride in the fact that mm-hmm. uh, this man's story was never told, and it should have been. We should have learned about this guy. Why wasn't he? Well, it was partly his own fault. He was just a very quiet, shy guy 
who didn't draw attention to himself or his accomplishments. He didn't think they were anything that special. Mm-hmm. But he started the first uh, camp for girls, a sport, uh, athletic camp for girls. He mm-hmm. was the first one. He had three daughters and he thought, you know, <clears throat> women, g- girls don't get the same opportunities as boys. Why not? Yeah. How come? He was also one of the first to go on record as saying that a woman could beat a man in a, a swimming. It was a swimming event. And people were just, he was in 1920s. Are you out of your mind? What, you're crazy. <laughs> and so he, you know, he realized that, um, and again, I think because he suffered a disability and had to work that much harder, that uh, he realized that certain peoples had to work that much harder to just even to gain equality, to be noticed. And he wanted to champion these people. So when he started the Philadelphia Children's Playground Association, he made sure that there was ample room for people that might have had disabilities. And remember, the wheelchair had not yet been invented, or at Mm. least it hadn't been, um, uh, it wasn't, uh, hadn't gone gone to market. It was strictly for hospitals, for example. So, but to have the foresight to think there's got to be enough room for people that might be very large, Mm -hmm. right? Perhaps an obese child. How is that? You know, how, how do you do the monkey bars that way? You make the, you know, make the slide wide enough or the swings wide enough, that type of a thing. So yeah. he, was, uh, he was, again, he was a great man and, and he was Canadian. And we should yep. treat him the way we treated James Naismith who invented basketball. Yeah, absolutely. If you we look should. at, uh, if you look at, uh, I have an episode coming up in beginning of August about Bobby uh, Rosenfeld. And he should be kind of seen on that same level of, yes, he was in America, but he, had what he did in Philadelphia has an impact on Canada because we run here. We, you know, we participated in these sports, uh, not to mention the fact that he helped bring hockey to Philadelphia. So we, like you said, we should be honoring him on that level that we honor a lot of those early uh, pioneers in sport, especially in hockey. So why can't we, why can't we do that? Why is it so (laughs) difficult? Are we trying to convince people or is it the fact that this has been in print for so long that uh, people have just never knew who he was and why can't they accept the fact that we've discovered a great Canadian? Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, I, guess, I don't need to take credit for it, but Hey, by the way, did you know about this guy? Did you know he's Canadian? Did you? Wow. Really? Oh. <laughs> it's like we, we make a big make a deal fuss. about anybody that's <laughs> yeah. got Canadian roots, right? Mm-hmm. Don't we? So yeah, absolutely. It's like a discovery. It's sort of like discovering something that, I don't know. It's, it's not worth its weight in gold. I think it's a great story. And hopefully by the Olympics next year in 2021, um, you know, that uh, the story will become more popular. More Canadians mm-hmm. will know about this, uh, this fellow. Absolutely. Uh, what's the response to the book been like? It's been really good. Scott Russell of CBC Sports actually just finished and uh, sent me an email today how much he enjoyed it, how much he learned from it. And mm-hmm. makes me feel really good that people uh, enjoyed it, but that, that they also learned things. Because that, you know, part of it was, look, I need to educate you, not just about this man, but, you know, there has to be some context. This is what life was like in the 1890s and the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we didn't have the modern technology. Radio hadn't even been invented yet. So newspapers were very powerful. And word of mouth was, you know, wow. And I saw this guy. I saw this happen. Uh, and so um, his exploits today, if it were going on today, it would be a whole other story. Oh, yeah. Without be, oh, my God. I'm not going to say it would be like Tiger Woods, but it would be like, let's go watch the one-armed runner from Canada <laughs> yeah. or, or, or words to that effect, right? Like, oh, my yeah. God, look at this guy. Yeah, absolutely. So it would, it would be, you know, quite uh, – it would be a great story, um, and it would be covered, uh, and it would be seen by a lot of people. Back then, nobody in Canada thought to, um, you know, uh, write the story or even go. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as far as the Americans, I mean, sure, they wrote George Orton up, but they didn't say George Orton from Toronto, Canada. They said George Orton, you know, who represented the University of Pennsylvania. 
and by that time was known as the great Pennsylvania athlete. Like he yeah. was really famous. By the time he won in 1900, he already had a PhD and he had already set numerous records. You know, he was a world champion numerous times. And so he was like a famous already. And he was like running the, helping run the pen relays. So he was super well known by then. Mm -hmm. It would be like, uh, you know, the equivalent of like a movie, like Donovan Bailey almost, kind of like at his <laughs> more advanced age, kind of running, going out there and like, oh, that's Donovan Bailey. We know him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's in the Olympics again. You know, he's trying. It's like when Mark Spitz was in at the age of 44 or whatever. We're like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. We know him. You know. Yeah. And so Absolutely. he was extremely popular there. But again, back in Canada, if you would have asked anyone, they would have gone, oh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And some of the old timers might have written in. And, and like I said, some of the columnists didn't bother to do their research didn't bother to pick up a phone and say and call philadelphia and go hey i've heard about this orton guy or had they they would have known that he was extremely popular very well known uh in sports there but they just you know they didn't do that and uh, that was to his detriment and he he wasn't the kind of guy to pick up the phone and go hey how come you guys aren't writing about me back how come the toronto star and the toronto telegram and the globe mail aren't writing about me that wasn't his style yeah should have been because <laughs> yeah, he definitely helped. deserved but it. anyway yeah. He does deserve it. And um, like I said, I mean, I, 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 even to this day, I'm amazed at some of the stuff that, that I uncovered about mm -hmm. a man that he could have, like, um, nobody could have known this stuff. Like, I mean, to me, that's a great life that should be celebrated or at least acknowledged. Absolutely. Uh, in regards to the documentary, uh, is there kind of a, a date when that's coming out or uh, is it? Uh, I don't know. I'm, 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 no, not even close. Not even close. We're um, trying a whole bunch of different things. I mean, um, you know, I want to tell the story, but I want it to look good. And uh, yeah. it just wasn't quite up to specifications. It didn't quite have it. And so uh, until I can uh, secure that and that's, there's financing and other things like that. Um, I can wait. It's not yeah. like it's a big hurry. Nobody's not, the story isn't going anywhere, <laughs> yeah. but to, but also to advance it, I need to set, straight the mainstream media that keep printing incorrect pictures and you know <laughs> wrong information and stuff like that to kind of okay now have you kind of got it okay and now here's the documentary about the guy that was so misunderstood and so you know just the fact that the, the, the fact that they they posted a picture of his brother for like a hundred years and said this is george orton to me is just can you imagine because when i sent the, the, the picture to his granddaughter I mean. <laughs> yeah when I sent the picture to his granddaughter, I said, oh, here's a picture of your grandfather. And she, she sent me an email back saying, well, that's not George Horton. <laughs> I'm like, what? What do you mean that's not him? Oh, no, that's his brother. I'm going, are you kidding me? A hundred years this picture's been saying it's not him? So can you imagine, Craig, if that was you, if they had a picture of your brother. Yeah. Right? Here's Craig Baird. And they're going, wait, that's not me. That's, that's, they got the wrong picture. That's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> we all just assumed and it just, no one, no one questioned it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And I didn't know myself until again, until his granddaughter said, that's not him. I would have thought, you know, that's him. Yeah. Looks like the same guy. <laughs> um, my last question is, uh, so now that this book's done and uh, you've, t you told the story about uh, George Orton, any other notable or obscure Canadian athletes, athletes you'd like to, uh, to profile in a future book? I, I would. In fact, I, I am working on as part of if I can do a documentary that has Orton in it. There are a couple of other Canadian athletes, Olympians, in fact, that I would like to include in the sort of the same story or along the same vein. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one was a high jumper who passed away last year. Her name was Shirley Olofsson from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And um, she was also disabled. She um, 
she uh, could not jump. She had to land on the same leg that she jumped off of because of a childhood injury to her, her legs. She wore heavy, thick braces, and yet she represented Canada in the 1948 Olympics in high jump. Really? But to overcome what she overcame was, again, remarkable and a, and a, a little known story. I just, and, and as a woman, too, fascinating mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, you know, I'd, I wanted to gather some information, tried, but I was working on the Orton thing at the time, but I sort of always had a file about this woman and I uh, never got to meet her, but had spoken to some friends of her and such like that. And uh, I think that would be, again, the type of, the type of story about someone that's, you know, passed away, but, but back in her time, it's important to kind of know, you know yeah. what she went through and, and how great a champion she was Absolutely. with a disability. Yeah, Incredible. especially, really, especially yeah. one like that. Inspiring, I think, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's inspiring. That's something that you need to tell that story for future, uh, you know, um, uh, youngsters, uh, disabled persons that, that need, you know, look, if this woman could do that. And this was at the able-bodied Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There was no, yeah. there were no uh, Paralympics mm -hmm. in those days. So even more remarkable a feat. Uh, she was one. And the other one was... Now, and I'm not sure of her status, so I really, I shouldn't mention her name or anything like that, but this woman, her, uh, her two sons both played in the NHL and were very, very good NHL players, and her sister was an Olympic gold medalist for Canada. And so I'm trying to work angles, and um, I don't want to give too much away, but she's, uh, she's, her health is not great, um, and uh, I haven't been in touch with her for a while, but, but her story and the story of her kids her two nhl sons and her um olympic gold winning sister I mean, that's quite a family there so that is yeah you know, there, there there would be a lot to that story but at the same time um, some pretty notable names and again just a great to me a great canadian success story where there is some olympics to it and nhl and mm -hmm. i mean you know i mean if you were to ask about the great you know the, the the number one canadian family in sports it might be the sutter family because six kids went to the nhl that's yeah. quite an accomplishment. But I mean, if you were to look at families and look at bloodlines and say, hey, Howie Morenz, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. His son-in-law was Bernie Jeffreyon. Mm -hmm. Bernie Jeffreyon's son, his son. I mean, that's a pretty good line. Yeah. Um, and so this family might, you know, might perhaps have that where, you know, where two of the sisters, one of them almost made the Olympic team. And the other one did make the Olympic team and won a gold. And two sons, uh, prominent NHL players. Mm -hmm. yeah, pretty, pretty good story. So Absolutely. can't tell you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark Hebsher. And if you did, please give a rating and review. You can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. And you can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history on my website. Just go to canadaehx.com. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.